Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to the second GTC lecture in our series this year on feeding um, a better future. Thank you very much for coming out on, on such a horrible evening, and my thanks again to the principal and fellows of St Anne's for lending us their lovely lecture theatre uh, for these events. We got off to a splendid start last week with Professor Sir Gordon Conway talking about the future of the planet. Tonight the focus is a little more intimate. It's on your diet and mine. And I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Alex Richardson. Uh, Alex, as you can see from the slide, is a senior research fellow in the Centre for Evidence-Based Intervention. She's also a founder director of this very interesting and important charity called Food and Behaviour Research. Because Alex is a leading expert on the role of nutrition in brain development and in behaviour. She's author of the widely acclaimed book, They Are What You Feed Them, which I think is a very arresting title. And her title tonight is The Importance of Nutrition for Mental Health and Performance, Changing Diets, Changing Minds. Over to you. Thank you very much. Now, it's an honour and a privilege to be invited to give a talk as part of this series. And any of you who were here last week will agree uh, with what's just been said, that really we could have not expected a more inspiring start to this series. I need to apologise in advance that mine is going to be nothing like so uplifting, because my message is likely to come across as a little bit more depressing, because what I'm going to be focusing on is the modern Western-type diet that most of us are eating, and what this is actually doing to our brains and behaviour as far as we know. And there will, of course, be many, many effects that we have no idea of. Now, this lovely cartoon from some time back, The Economist, uh, highlighted where things are going. And we do know, we know already, that in terms of physical health, when it comes to obesity, type 2 diabetes and related physical illnesses, that, quite frankly, the modern Western type diet is not exactly good for our health. And it's been fairly well documented that many of the changes that have been introduced in a remarkably short space of time, the blink of an eye in terms of evolutionary time, are in fact not just novel, they really are known to be pathological, disease-causing. And I've translated some of these uh, terms, like I think glycemic is probably a word that most folk have come across. We've been hearing about glycemic indices and glycemic loads, but I've put them in uh, pretty, pretty plain red boxes here. We're talking sugar, fat, vitamins and minerals that I'm not actually going to focus on this much in this talk. I'm going to be dealing mainly with the first two and the overall big picture. But we tend to think of nutritional deficiencies, you know, of being, ah, well, in developing countries, vitamin A deficiency, for example, is the leading cause of blindness and disability and mortality in the developing world. It's quite shocking, though, that even in this country, and I'm just telling you this because it was one of the slides I had to drop, one in ten of all of our school children, according to the last National Dietary Survey, actually has a dietary deficiency of vitamin A. And that's taking into account its precursor, beta-carotene, da-da-da. So these micronutrients I'm not going to be saying too much about. 
But suffice to say, we do know that modern Western-type diets aren't very good for physical health. Now, physical health is much more tangible, by its nature, than the whole issue of mental health and performance. And although this is quite an old uh, newspaper coverage of our work, um, it really does make the point that the damage that's being done to behaviour and cognition and mood, this is the invisible detrimental effects of the modern Western type diet. And when we link this with some of the challenges that we're facing, again, these problems have actually got worse rather than better since 2004. But figures then had the British government pumping 342 million into school behaviour programmes. So problems with behaviour, and not just in schools, in our communities. Um, the World Health Organisation was predicting a 50% increase in child mental ill health between 1990 and 2020. That's when they do their major upgrading of predictions, which they revise on an ongoing basis. Now, I'm sorry to say we are well on track to meet that 50% increase over that period. And conditions like dyslexia, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autistic spectrum and so on, a host of these developmental disorders that do affect behaviour and learning, these all appear to be on the increase. Now, I know there's an awful lot of controversy about these sorts of diagnostic labels, and I know that not least because this was actually the area that I first studied when I came into research. Um, these sorts of diagnoses, and in fact almost all the diagnoses we use across psychology and psychiatry, they're actually descriptions. They don't actually have any objective validity. And it's also the case that these sorts of difficulties are dimensional, they're a matter of degree. But it's rather sobering that we have one in five of all children now in mainstream schools in the UK, both primary and secondary, one in five of all children are deemed to have special educational needs of some kind. Now that's at school action level, it certainly isn't at the level of getting a statement and additional resources, that's been pegged for a long time at a very small percentage of the total population. But one in five kids needs some help, needs support in the classroom. And most of their difficulties would fall under mixtures of these sorts of labels to some degree or another. We have the same issue with other um, mental health issues, that the diagnoses themselves are all descriptive. And the conditions are dimensional, so no wonder there's so much controversy about mental health. And the overlaps between these conditions also make them really quite a challenge to study at the level that I decided I wanted to study these things, which was neurophysiology. Because, in fact, it's lovely to see you here, John, but uh, Professor John Stein, <laughs> physiology, uh, is where I went to do my PhD, having got interested in these whole array of developmental and neurodevelopmental conditions. The thing is, controversies about definitions, diagnoses, angels on a pinhead, let's just look at the costs. We really have reached the point now where the burden of mental ill health has overtaken the burden of physical ill health. It took some years to get these answers, freedom of information questions and so on, but in 2007, 77 billion was the annual cost. And for that to rise in just three years to 105 billion, not good. And then a recent paper, Richens et al., multi, multi, multi author, 
nearly 40% of the European population in any given year is suffering from a diagnosable mental health disorder. So if you ever thought, well, I'm all right, it's the other bit. Uh, 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 it's all of us, quite frankly. The most common of these, because I always have to follow that slide with, let's give this a breakdown, because people really can't believe it. But anxiety, insomnia, in terms of single conditions with the highest prevalence. But of course, there are overlaps between so many of these. And then ADHD and dementia, if we go down. ADHD, they say 5% in the young. Well, it's a lifetime condition, quite frankly, in terms of biological predisposition. And the dementia one obviously varies with age, but we are looking at unaffordable, really unaffordable in just economic terms, ignoring the individual misery, of course, of the individuals affected and their families. What pains me is that at the moment... Because of the paradigm that really dominates our whole health system, uh, is that nutrition is almost completely ignored. Really, it is. We pay lip service to, oh, everyone should, you know, follow the guidelines and five a day and so on, but really, no attention is paid to the nutritional status of individuals when they come to the attention of whether it's education, social services, criminal justice, or the health service. And yet, we know you need at least, it's more than 39, but those are the absolutely documented, different essential nutrients in order to build our bodies and brains in the first place, every cell, and then to maintain and fuel and repair those cells. So this ignoring of nutrition, we know this comes about, of course, because of a myriad of forces that, really, we're talking patents and profits. And somehow, food, and it's being treated as a commodity, and companies simply pursuing the profit motive, nobody really has joined the dots and thought, if we just leave our food system to be dictated by sort of market forces and people choosing what they wish to eat, and we just let rip, what will happen? Well, what will happen is what has happened. And it's not good. Because, as I've said, even when it comes to things like vitamin A, 10% of what you could do this with almost every individual nutrient. So what we know is that if you were to take any individual, you'd be very hard-pressed to find anybody who's actually replete in all of the micronutrients that we know are essential. When we say essential, we mean it. And that background knowledge is there, but it just gets ignored. And nobody asks about nutritional status when it comes to the identification or the management of these sorts of conditions. Now, this slide I always use quite early on here because, and I always use the same line that Bernard Gesch uses, that if anyone is sceptical about this, well, go and have a look at this trial. Because this was one of the first very rigorously conducted studies, a randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, that was methodologically really pretty much impossible to fault. It involved over 200 young offenders at a high-security prison. And the outcome measures were essentially disciplinary incidents, a very hard outcome measure, because this was very carefully recorded. And what the researchers did was to randomise these young men Multivitamin, and it was the NHS Multivit, just providing recommended daily intakes of a broad range of vitamins and minerals. And there were some fatty acids in there, the essential fats, the omega-3 and 6. 
And the results of this study were, quite frankly, striking. On intent to treat, which is the graph you're looking at here, if you'd had the active supplement, that group showed 26% fewer disciplinary offences. So to reduce antisocial behaviour by a quarter, simply by making sure that these young men had in their diets what's known to be essential for health, if it can make that sort of difference on hard behavioural outcomes, you do wonder why more resources aren't being poured into doing something about this. If you focused on those who took the supplements for at least two weeks of a possible nine-month period, then in fact that group difference is even greater. There was still no change on placebo, but it was a 34% reduction in antisocial behaviour, disciplinary offences. And for violence, it was nearly 40%, a 37% reduction. If you were to extrapolate from this to the wider community, you really do wonder why we aren't getting more attention to this. Although I will say that um, Bernard, with John Stein, has been embarking on replication studies and we await with interest uh, the results of those, which are due, I think, before too long. Now, the thing is, the diet that the prison was providing was in fact managing to meet current nutritional standards, but the choices that the prisoners were making was what was at issue. They were simply allowed to go get their favourite junk foods from the vending machine rather than eat the nutritionally adequate meals, if not very exciting, that were being provided to them. So this was really an issue of if you leave people with freedom of choice, then a lot of the time they're going to make choices that are not making good nutritional sense. And in fact, published in a separate paper, were the details of quite what proportion of prisoners were deficient in various micronutrients. So the thing is, they were probably better nourished inside the prison than these young men would be in the communities from which they'd come and to which they were going to be returned at the end of their sentence. So this, I think, certainly as a proof of concept, was an absolutely groundbreaking trial. Now, as I've said, I'm not going to go through massive details here. This is a broad-brush picture, but we're going to start with the issue of sugar because this one, highly controversial, and really is starting to hit the headlines, actually. Um, the whole issue of sugar is one which some will say are all refined carbohydrates are just as bad. And by refined carbs, we mean the white flour and the white rice and so on. Uh, and that these things really are disturbing to blood glucose metabolism. Now, in fact, it was... The British professor, John Yudkin, 40 years ago, wrote a book, Pure, White and Deadly. This was ignored, quite frankly, at the time. And instead, <coughs> the paradigm that was adopted, because of one man in the US, pretty much, who picked on some correlational data that, quite frankly, fitted sugar as well as it ever fitted fat. But we've now had 40 years of fat being demonised, and everyone thinking that a low-fat diet must be healthy... And things have not got better, things have got worse. And in America, they really have managed to cut their fat intake. But of course, a low-fat diet tends to be high in, guess what, sugar and refined carbs. So we really are now, I think, reaching a tipping point. And the British Medical Journal, just a couple of weeks ago, actually paid tribute to, on the Hopkins book, Pure, White and Deadly, 
it's pretty much been deemed now a medical classic. So I think a tipping point has been reached that people are having to face the facts that the current <coughs> approach isn't working. But let's take it sort of very simplistic when it comes to brain and behaviour, leaving aside the obesity and the diabetes. Really, to put it in a very simple manner, and this graph, I must credit Dave Rex, actually, who's a dietitian from the Highland who provided this um, freely for people to use. But what you've got, if you are going to imbibe the sugary soft drink and the chocolate bar on the way to school, what you've effectively got is blood sugar rocketing up and taking you way above, oops, my laser pointer's not very strong, an optimal zone, the optimal range for brain function is to have your blood glucose somewhere in the middle. If it's too low or too high, as anyone with uncontrolled diabetes knows too well, this is not good. You're talking coma and death, quite frankly, at uh, almost either end. But the optimal range for brain function, you're not going to be in it very much of the day if you imbibe sugary stuff, drives up your blood sugar, and then quite frankly, that's the trigger for insulin to flood out and crash your blood sugar again, leaving you craving something sugary. So it's a very simplistic way of putting it, but this is why slow-release foods at the start of the day are less likely to cause the initial spike and far more likely to lead to good blood glucose control. Although, again, it's over the longer term that you're going to actually wear out your blood sugar control system, resulting in things like type 2 diabetes. That is indeed why this has become epidemic. Is because of the kinds of foods that we're consuming. Now, it's an American professor, Robert Lustig, who's really put the cat amongst the pigeons and been remarkably brave and outspoken. He put one of his biochemistry lectures onto YouTube a couple of years ago, and it went viral. It has been watched, I think, now by about three million people, and he called it Sugar, the Bitter Truth. Now, he has, in fact, just published his own book called Fat Chance, The Bitter Truth About Sugar, uh, he has also uh, written a foreword to a republication of Pure White and Deadly. He hadn't even heard of John Yodney. As I say, that story was effectively buried. But when somebody did alert him to it, and he went and read that, he was just struck by, gracious me, he was right all along. And Robert Lustig calls himself, quite frankly, a Yodkin disciple. <coughs> you know, he's just reinvented what was actually put very lucidly 40 years ago. But I loved, and I'm going to give you direct, his answers to when he was interviewed by a new scientist in there, one minute with somebody or other, he was asked, why do we consume so much sugar? Well, one reason is it's addictive. The food industry knows that when they add fructose, we buy more. That's why it's in everything. Well, when we say everything, he's documented it's 80% of all foods in an American supermarket contain sugar. And when I was asked to make some media comments on the recent oh, horse burger scandal and was interviewed for one of our major media. The other ingredients other than beef was what they wanted me to sort of comment on and what these are doing here. Well, there's sugar, quite frankly, in your beef burgers. You wouldn't really expect that they would need this. But I think Lustig is absolutely right. When they add sugar, it just makes it that bit more appealing and people buy more. He also says, of the five tastes, sweet, salt, sour, bitter, and the savoury taste umami, sugar covers up the other four. <coughs> So you can't taste the negative aspects of foods. And should anyone be left in any doubt about the implications, he spells it out. I'll leave you to read that one. <laughs> and yeah, I think you can see he has caused a bit of a controversy here, and I won't in any way try to go into detail on this, but the issue that he has uncovered, and he appears to have the biochemical arguments and there's other evidence behind this, 
glucose versus fructose. Table sugar is about 50-50 glucose fructose. Sucrose is a mix of the two. Glucose is the sugar of life. All living cells use it as a source of energy and it's absorbed directly into the bloodstream. Fructose ah, needs to go to the liver. And technically that is what makes it a toxin. We can't make use of it until the liver has done some dealing with this. And the essence of his message is that, quite frankly, if you consume your fructose, which is fruit sugar, as I'm sure most of you know, in the form that nature provides it, then there isn't a problem. Its absorption is slowed down by the fibre, you've got all the other valuable nutrients in those sweet vegetables and fruits, but if it's a white powder, so we're back on that wonderfully evocative title, pure, white and deadly, sugar is acting like an addictive drug according to Lustig, and therefore this is not good. And you really can't expect, if something is literally addictive, that leaving, oh, freedom of choice, I think this is where you get into some quite uh, controversial areas, because what are we going to do about this if it's really responsible for the problems that it appears it may be? He also is very, very scathing about the advice that simply doesn't work, of eat less and exercise more, and the first law of thermodynamics, yeah, sure, as a closed system, energy in, energy out, but the human body and mind, these are not closed systems, if something like sugar actually alters your metabolism. And what Lustig, who by nature is an endocrinologist, has uncovered is, whoa, the effects on key hormones that regulate energy metabolism and appetite. This is where fructose slips under the radar. It does not trigger those signals that say, I've had enough, I'm going to stop eating. It doesn't. And therefore, you will overeat if a lot of what you're imbibing is fructose. It's invisible calories as far as your appetite control system is concerned. And I tend to sum this up for lay audiences. What Lustig is saying is that trying to lose weight by eating less and exercising more is not going to work if you keep eating the sugary junk. Because this will make you lazy and it'll make you greedy. That's effectively what it's doing. Because the way that it affects these hormones, it actually affects behaviour. Now, I'm going to come back to one of Bernard Gesh's case studies here. Because another of his favourite tricks when giving a talk, bless him, is to say, look, if you don't believe me, try this diet for three months and then come back and tell me how you feel. So I'm going to leave you to read through the diet, which was actually the recorded diet of one of his young offenders when he was working with a probation service in Cumbria. And this young man had been up before the courts on numerous occasions. He'd actually been sent down three times. His offence was always the same. It was stealing trucks late at night. But as Bernard says, if you look at the pattern here, you begin to see a little bit of a clue. And in terms of just quite what state your brain would be in with that amount of sugar by the time it got to late at night, well, yeah. Now, this was actually one of Bernard's utter success stories because he had been able to persuade the local courts, as I say, he was working for the probation service before he went into research to try to get something done about this on a bigger scale. He said, look, we'll be happy to... So this young man, after three terms in prison, where... As Bernard said, each time he was discharged from prison, guess how he got home? Stole a truck late at night, having started his days like this. So they discharged him into Bernard and his probation team's good care. And after an incredibly simple 
treatment. Zinc and chromium, two essential nutrients for regulating blood sugar control, actually. And some advice on diet. He was actually never heard from by the criminal justice system again. He got himself a job and a girlfriend and off he went and settled down. So you think, it would be good if a little more attention was paid to some basics. Here's another of Bernard's cases. This was a young woman, a girl, who... Serious substance abuse. But she was put into the care of the probation team who went for a pretty intensive nutritional programme. He calls it here a nutritional sentence. And they got her to simply to fill in, you know, each day how she was feeling. And what I want you to focus on here is the difference between this and the next one. 19 (coughs) days later. And it's not so much the actual scores from minus 3 to plus 3 being the range that she's supposed to tick or shade a box. I want you to look at the handwriting and look back at that one. It's a simply extraordinary qualitative difference. Now, of course, these sorts of data, it's all just anecdote. We've got to have the randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. And this was why Bernard went into research, quite frankly, just knowing that, look, this does seem to work on a case-by-case basis for a lot of the young people he was coming across. But trying to get the research evidence is a different game altogether. We do know from animal studies that sugar does have the addictive properties insofar as anyone can define addiction. Um, in terms of hitting the very same reward pathways that known drugs of abuse do. There's really some pretty common mechanisms at the level of the brain in terms of reward. And therefore, that is what makes the whole thing of addiction so very difficult to define, but sugar does appear to tick the boxes. Right, so having depressed you all with the sugar story, we're now going to move on to the other thing that we're doing very badly wrong, and that's the fats. Now, as I've said, fat has been demonised now for about 40 years, and you really do wish that there was a bit more emphasis on the fact that there's actually a lot of different kinds of fat, and they're not all the same, not remotely. And yet, we have dramatically changed, or I say we, the food industry has dramatically changed the fatty acid composition of our diets, and it's done so in this evolutionary blink-of-an-eye time period. And the implications of this are, quite frankly, again, striking. So it's a matter of quality, not quantity. We've known for a long time that when they went looking for the country that had all the longest life expectancy in good health, the winner, when they were comparing across countries, was Crete. What was the percentage of fat in that diet? Well, actually, it was 40%. So total fat was not the issue, but this was your classic Mediterranean-type diet. There's as many Mediterranean diets as there are Mediterranean countries, but the traditional diet of Crete is really one that they mean when they refer to a Mediterranean-type diet. So it's the quality that matters. The thing is, fat so unglamorous, isn't it? Not much studied. The pharmaceutical folk were all off chasing proteins and protein folding and finding, you know, keys that will fit locks and receptors. Fat? Who wants to study fat? And when it came to dietary advice, again, protein as the sort of building bodies kind of thing. Um, That was very much the focus, and kind of still is, in terms of some of the things we use to monitor the growth and development of babies and children. You look at the physical growth charts, their weight, their height, but that really put a lot of emphasis on dietary protein and very much neglected the fat issue. Now, when it comes to physical growth, this animal exemplifies, you know, efficient physical growth. But until I'd seen these slides of Professor Michael Crawford's, I really had never seen the rhino's brain. 
There it is. Inside that massive body is a brain that, certainly on this slide, looks not much bigger than a walnut. And this actually is true of all the land mammals. Michael, who was based for a long time at, uh, at the Regent's Park Zoo, and having tramped around Africa and studied every type of species, became really quite fascinated by what is going on here. That it is only man and the dolphin, quite frankly, who've got disproportionately large brains to bodies. Now I'm going to come to quite what significance that's got for diet in a moment. But as he emphasises, human development and survival, it's actually about our brains, not our bodies. That's what really matters to human beings. It's not physical bulk, although only Schwarzenegger movies, etc., notwithstanding. It's brains, and the nutrient requirements of the human brain have been so little researched. It's quite extraordinary. Michael was actually the first in the 70s to show that there's two fats in particular that are just critical to the brain. An omega-6 and an omega-3 fat. I'll come to them in a minute. But again, others of his slides, because a picture is worth a thousand words. This human mother and her infant of about a year of age, I want you to focus first on the relative size of the hands. And then on the relative size of those heads. Because a human infant comes into this world with a disproportionately large brain to body. And that brain needs feeding. And it needs feeding not just with, we hope, tender loving care and the right sorts of sensory and other experiences. It needs physical nutrition. But it's quite extraordinary that we've been ignoring the nutritional requirements of the brain, while at the same time changing our food supply so dramatically. Because another little-known fact, your brain, if you ignore its water content, is 60% fat. Now, if we're telling everybody that fat is bad and everyone's going on low-fat, let alone no-fat diets, this does not um, bode well for their brains. And it really does matter. We're back on quality of those fats again. And yet dietary advice, until remarkably recently, just really was neglecting this completely. And certainly in terms of what most people, just through popular press or dietary guidelines as they understand them from whomever, everyone just thinks, oh, fat, that's bad. There's a lot of different types of fat, and we've been tampering with them. So, to condense evolutionary history into just one chart, if we look, it really all changed with the industrialisation of our food supply. And you can see, yeah, okay, total fat did indeed start increasing in our diets. I want you to look, too, at the coronary artery disease. We keep being told that, oh, genetics and things like that. <laughs> there are some environmental things that we've done. Now, obviously, diet's only one of those. But I want you to focus on the omega-6 and omega-3, or in this notation, N-6 and N-3, and just look at the divergence there, and then look up. I'm sorry, my point is a little bit um, tired. The ratio of the two essential fats. These are as essential as vitamins and minerals. They are polyunsaturates, and they come in two kinds. They're either omega-6 or they're omega-3. Most folk have heard of polyunsaturates, but they haven't made the link, or no one's told them, that polyunsaturates are either omega-3 or omega-6 fats. And the ratio of the two really, really matters. We have dramatically increased the omega-6 fats in our diets and dramatically reduced the omega-3s. What we've also done, and this was a real food industry triumph, she said cynically, 
is, oh dear, we were all told, if you remember, that margarine was going to be healthier for us than butter because it's made from polyunsaturated vegetable oils. Now, hang on. I'm, not, I'm going to spare you all the chemistry, which you should be grateful for. But unsaturated fats, they're actually liquid at room temperature. Saturated fats are solid at room temperature. So if you want to make a quick judgment of any particular fat, just look at how solid it is at room temperature. Butter and lard and the fat on meat, they're predominantly saturated, so they're solid or semi-solid at room temperature. This trick of taking vegetable oils rich in polyunsaturates, omega-6, of course, which is another one I'll come to, and then turning this into margarine, hydrogenation was the technique that the food industry just went for. Why wouldn't you? You could take cheap liquid vegetable oils like cottonseed oil, is actually what the first ever margarine called Crisco <coughs> was made from. We don't normally eat cottonseed oil, actually. Not terribly nutritious stuff. But hydrogenation, it either saturates the fat, or you can choose your consistency. Partially hydrogenated vegetable oils are actually one of the worst things that we could possibly have done because in the process of hydrogenation, you twist these fats out of shape, trans fats. I'm going to ask for the show of hands that I always ask for from an audience. How many of you already know about and actively try to avoid trans fats? Not bad, but it's still probably less than 50%, but much better than your average audience, as one might hope or expect. Trans fats are literally toxic. The World Health Organization declared them in 2009 to be a toxin. They basically are associated with heart disease, diabetes, some cancers, obesity, the list goes on. But if something's been declared a toxin by the World Health Organization, you really do wonder what it's still doing in our food supply. Now, very soon after that declaration, NICE, who do advise our government, as I'm sure you know, they did advise back in spring 2010, ban trans fats. The government still, in this country, hasn't seen fit to do so. They are relying on voluntary regulation by the food industry. Oh, please. Even if the big boys do what they've said they will do, and, oh yes, they will phase these toxins out of our food supply, that will still leave huge proportions of people unprotected. Because your average takeaway, you know, what do they know about the oils they're buying? They just want them to be cheap. And really, if you eat out, or if you're on a low income, then you are still at risk when you eat fried foods, etc. There is a very, very good food program that was done on this, and their podcast will still be there. If you go to the Fab Research website and you want to listen through, it's absolutely stunning that, quite frankly, they've really gone into why large proportions of our population are still exposed to these things. So these are the twisted fats, no nutritional benefits, many health risks, and they compete with the natural, essential omega-3s and 6s. They're twisted versions of the same, so they really do clog up the machinery and disrupt cell signaling. Now, let's take you very quickly through how we get these things in our diet, what from, and you can see then what the foods are that uh, are doing the damage, if you like. Omega-6 fats, vegetable oils, are the major source in modern Western-type diets. But I've put into colour, these are the omega-6 fats, AA, the one in red. That's the one you need for your brain cell membranes it's an, and for a host else. It's a really, really important fat. We do have a pathway for turning the shorter chain into the longer chain fats, 
But for both the omega-6 and 3, it's the long-chain ones that perform the important biological functions. So where do we get AA directly? Well, we get it from meat and eggs and dairy. So even your American junk food diet is very rich in the omega-6 that you do need, and it is unbelievably rich in this precursor. 10% of all calories in the US diet now come from one molecule, linoleic acid. We're awash with vegetable oil. It's cheap. So you're awash with omega-6, but if we now turn to the omega-3, where do you get even the simplest one, and the only one that vegetarians are going to get directly, or vegans? Green leafy veg, very popular. And some nut and seed oils, but most have more omega-6 than 3. The only place that you get the long-chain omega-3 that you need to build your heart, your brain, and to make your immune system function is from fish and seafood. So we're actually looking at the old folk wisdom that fish is good for the brain. And this brings me back to what Michael Crawford noticed about the dolphins and man, and why the rhino, along with the horse or the camel or anything else that's land-based and eats a grain-based diet and really doesn't get these long-chain omega-3, it can't build a big brain. It's just not getting the materials in its diet. Now, this is what human beings now are doing to themselves. They're choosing, or the food industry has chosen for them, to create these wonderfully delicious Dunkin' Donuts and fries and Big Macs and stuff, and people don't eat their fish and seafood. But what we've done is to dramatically change the proportion of omega-3 to 6 fats in our diets. Now, we need these omega-3 for the structure of all brain cell membranes. We need the omega-6 as well. And this is vital to cell signaling. Nearly 10% of the dry weight of your brain should be one of these omega-3 from fish and seafood, called DHA. You particularly find it at the synapse. And we also know that concentrations of all of your major neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, influenced by your omega-3 status. Whoops. Now, this slide is always an absolute cracker. In terms of, yeah, I won't take you through the chemistry, it's here to make a point. You've got the omega-6 and 3 family, I've put the coloured ones, the ones we need. But the derivatives, the substances we make from these things, in a nutshell, if you haven't got the right balance of omega-3 and 6, it's going to upset your blood flow, your hormone balance, and your immune system. And some other things I'll flag up in a minute. And very broadly, omega-6, they are pro-thrombotic. They are pro-inflammatory. Omega-3, anti-thrombotic. Anti-coagulant, if you like. Anti-inflammatory. And since we do now know that at the root of all of the degenerative diseases, physical and mental, quite frankly, inflammation, chronic low-grade inflammation, is actually a primary cause of heart disease. So to have a dietary imbalance like this, that is predisposing all of us, quite frankly, who consume such a diet, to inflammation and blood clots, strikes one as, shouldn't we be taking a bit more notice of this? Now again, this knowledge really only came through in the early 70s, and that was about the same time that the cholesterol myth was born. And there's some real profits to be made in selling drugs to bring down cholesterol, anyway. But your diet, and the balance of fats in your diet, somehow beneath the radar. Other things that we make from these omega-3s and 6s, now endocannabinoids, some of you may have seen if you've been looking at the labels. Whoa, the commonest receptor in the human brain is the CB1, the cannabinoid 1 receptor. Woo, there's not much that the endocannabinoids don't do in terms of how many functions they influence. And then more recently discovered from the omega-3s, extra things called resolvins that help to resolve inflammation and bring it to an end when it's done its job. 
Other things made from DHA called neuroprotectins. Guess what they do? They protect brain cells and stop them from committing suicide when things get too stressed. They help to protect neurons. So to ignore the dietary input to basically how our brains function, not just our bodies, that's what we've been doing. During brain development, you need the omega-3s and 6s to build your brain in the first place and the infant formula issues. Again, it took quite a while before it became recognised that, oops, we need to put the long-chain 3s and 6s into infant formula. You need the omega-3 for vision, and this was my entry point into nutrition. John Stein and I had been studying the visual and attentional problems of people with conditions like dyslexia, ADHD, even schizophrenia in some of my postdoc work. But omega-3 are needed to build a visual system. Nearly half your retina should be one of these omega-3 from fish oils. And a lack of these omega-3, poor night vision, age-related macular degeneration, the commonest cause of blindness. In fact, they've dropped the age-related now because that's marching down the age cohorts and turning up in much younger people. So, yeah, there are some really quite serious implications. When the brain is developing... And neurons need to actually put out connections. They've shown that, quite frankly, without DHA, you get an impoverished brain network. Those cells do not grow to the same size, and they don't make as many connections. The next slide is even more illustrative of this. This was, of course, an animal study, but a mum raised on an omega-3 deficient diet will give rise to offspring that have literally 50% fewer connections, synaptic connections. That's quite worrying when we look at the omega-3 intakes of most pregnant women. Anyway, it gets worse. I'm going to try to get a little cheerier as we wind towards the end, but I told you this was not going to be the optimistic talk we heard last week. Okay? Nutritional programming. We now know that the diet that mum is consuming, and in fact her nutritional status before she ever gets pregnant, but the diet she's consuming while carrying a child is going to influence that child's health and development for its entire lifetime because the environment imprints onto our genome. And when we talk about nutritional programming, nutrition is one of the most powerful of what they call epigenetic influences. So quite frankly, if mum's diet is the modern Western type diet, you might have done a skim of some of the keywords here, or you might not. But if she eats the Western type diet and her fat intake mirrors the usual, Increased anxiety, stress, and basically predisposed to metabolic syndrome and everything that goes with it. This is not good. They're even now uncovering mechanisms, and the endocannabinoids are right in there. We've got a lot of animal studies now, and for obvious reasons, it's unethical to do the controlled studies in humans. You can't deliberately make mums omega-3 deficient and give omega-3 to others. We've done it as a natural experiment, just allowing the food industry to do what it does and allowing people to choose what foods they like. But the endocannabinoids, they are one of the mechanisms that's now been clearly nailed down for leading to this increased lifetime risk of anxiety depression if mum is omega-3 deficient during pregnancy. You've also, more recently, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, a substance that helps brain cells grow and connect, so that underpins the slides I was showing you of impoverished brain networks. And insulin is also in there, and the stress hormones. So mum's diet really matters. And these data that come from the Children of the 90s study, the biggest and best birth cohort study anywhere in the world, 
They simply looked at mum's fish intake during pregnancy. Because mums, of course, the main message they pick up from public health is, ooh, careful about the mercury. And there are actually limits set as to the maximum intake of fish and seafood that pregnant women are supposed to consume. And so these data were carved up according to, is mother's intake concordant with current guidelines, or did she eat too much fish, and might therefore be risking mercury poisoning, and we all know how horrible that would be. But what these data showed, when controlling for literally hundreds of other variables, the best outcomes on a range of developmental measures came from the mums who ate more than the current maximum recommendation. And the worst outcomes were the mums who ate no fish at all. And as I say, they'd controlled for things that were known to influence verbal intelligence, motor skills, social skills. So this, if you like, is actually potentially more powerful than a randomised controlled trial. And again, we're never going to see those sorts of data. You also need these things throughout the lifespan. As I've said, substances we make from omega-3 affect not just your brain signaling systems, but your hormones, your blood flow, and your immune system. So we now come to what's the very short review, because we've got so few trials so far. But really, the important question is, is there anything we can do about this? If we were to increase dietary intake, could we improve mental health and performance? It's already known that heart disease and stroke, some inflammatory conditions, and as I said, visual problems, yep, Omega-3 in controlled trials has been shown beneficial across those domains. Where we still have a bit of a question mark is to do with brain and behaviour, but I'm going to give you a whiz-bang summary. When it comes to depression, the correlational data have been there for a long time. High sugar consumption goes with depression, and a lack of omega-3 at the population level. This paper, published in The Lancet in 98, just showed across countries those who consume the most fish have the lowest rates of depression. But we all know correlation is not causation. I'm going to spare you the clinical biochemical data and jump straight to the meta-analysis summaries. There are now enough controlled trials that meta-analyses have been proliferating too, and they do show significant benefits for depression and the depressive symptoms of bipolar disorder insofar as some trials have included those patients. But when it comes to the general population, students or, you know, folk with heart disease, for example, the data are more equivocal. I'm astonished that there's so little data on children. There just isn't research funding for these areas. But the American Psychiatric Association decided some years ago that there was enough evidence to recommend this to basically all psychiatric patients. Here's what they said. All adults should eat fish at least twice a week, at least a gram a day, for long-chain omega-3 from fish and seafood and for supplement if needs be. But they were very careful to emphasise, of course, this is not a substitute for standard treatment. Far from it. This is in addition to whatever other treatment. And if anyone wants to see the meta-analyses, there is now debate about, ooh, which of the omega-3 is it? And if anyone's interested, it appears at the moment it's EPA rather than DHA that should predominate in your supplement if you want the antidepressant effect. When it comes to more, about, this is about the most severe mental illness we've got, schizophrenia. This study made no media coverage at all, as far as I could see. I do think, and I've heard, that yet they are trying to replicate this, but this was prevention of schizophrenia. 81 young people, randomised controlled trial. I shall jump to the results. Quite frankly, their number needed to treat to prevent 
a first breakdown into schizophrenia was four. You just had to give fish oils for 12 weeks to confer 12 months <coughs> protection against having your first schizophrenic episode. Number needed to treat of four. Primary prevention statins, your number needed to treat is two or three hundred people need to be given those drugs for one person to benefit. It is the statistic that matters, quite frankly, when it comes to health treatment, is the number of people you need to treat. P-values depend on your number of subjects. There's an array of other conditions where there's one or two trials only, more research needed. Um, so pilot data only. And I'm just going to finish with a summary overview of the child behaviour and learning data, because this is my specialist area. And after not that many trials, this is a meta-analysis of only um, about 600 patients. But in fact, there is a benefit of omega-3 for ADHD-type symptoms. So that's one which certainly our own pilot studies and a lot of overhyping by the media led to a kind of backlash against the idea that a nutritional treatment might help child behaviour problems. But this is holding up as more data come forth. This is one of the trials that flipping heck the media got hold of, our Oxford-Durham study. It remains, you know, the biggest of these trials. We went for children who had the dyspraxia label, but 40% were dyslexic, 30% were ADHD. And what we found was actually no benefit for their motor skills. We got the placebo effect from hell there. We would need other studies to find out whether there might be a differential if you didn't have a placebo effect that was monstrous. But in other areas, for the ADHD, no placebo effect to speak of. Good, significant and clinically meaningful improvements in concentration, attention, reduction of impulsivity. And this was the novel finding that we've gone on to look at separately in later studies. Reading and spelling. To be able to boost literacy progress by giving a simple nutritional supplement of nutrients that we just know aren't in these kids' diets anyway. That was really the remarkable finding. And so we've built on that to look at a general population sample. Let's forget the diagnoses now and look at the general population. And our so-called DOLAB studies, the DHA Oxford Learning and Behaviour studies. Everything needs an acronym these days. Four months, 16 weeks of supplementation, DHA versus placebo. 360 children were in our first study that was published in PLOS One last September. Reading... ADHD symptoms, and working memory we decided to include as well. We did find differences not in the whole sample, but in the poorest readers, those who fell in the bottom fifth of the general population distribution. So what we're now doing, because this is of course a pre-planned subgroup analysis, we are now focusing on that subgroup to see if we can replicate this result. And if we can, I mean, the implications here were that for these children at the bottom fifth of the perfectly normal range, a 20% improvement over their classmates on placebo. And for those who were down in the bottom tenth of the normal distribution, a 50% improvement in their reading progress. So this would be meaningful if we can replicate it. When it came to behaviour, these kids were not selected for their behaviour problems, and they didn't have behaviour problems. They were in the perfectly normal range. Despite that, we found that their oppositional tendencies, their hyperactive tendencies, and pretty much the rest of the ADHD symptom ratings did indeed improve on supplementation. 
So I'm going to emphasize again, these kids did not have that disease called ADHD. They were perfectly normal kids who were struggling with their reading a bit. But again, this takes into the general population the effects that have been found in kids with clinical type difficulties. Now, as I wind up and look at all these depressed faces, I'm so sorry to have been the bearer of such bad news. And the thing is, I've focused on two main themes here, the sugar and how we've been getting the fats so badly wrong. But as I said at the outset, the micronutrients, we cannot afford to be complacent here because remarkable proportions of children and adults in our society are lacking nutrients that, as I say, by definition, we know to be essential. I'm going to mention one, and that's zinc, because this one, gracious me, zinc is needed for nearly two, some say 300 different enzymes in the brain and body as an essential cofactor. It's needed every time cells divide and replicate. It's only in recent years that, oops, they've suddenly found, my goodness me, it's also a neurotransmitter as well. We never knew. Lovely paper called Zinc, the brain's dark horse. And it would appear that a lack of zinc is going to lead to real difficulties linking up, if you like, to put it simply, mood and cognition. So those areas of the brain that are trying to integrate how you feel with how you're going to behave and what you think, zinc, really important. We have got 30% of the children in our communities don't get enough zinc in their diets. It's also one that when it comes to nutritional programming, we've got similar proportions of pregnant mums who... If you're zinc deficient during pregnancy, your offspring's immune system will not be normal. Both your innate immune system and your acquired immune system are likely to be scuppered by zinc deficiency, and worse still, it's heritable. So if we wonder where things like the allergy epidemics and all kinds of immune disorders, there's yet another contribution of just one nutrient. And all nutrients work in synergy. So, I am sorry it is such a depressing story. I'm going to finish with some of the things we've added to our food supply, because again, this was something that was controversial for many, many years, and we were told that it was just the parents and the teachers imagining things. But a meta-analysis some years ago did show that hyperactive children do indeed benefit if you remove artificial food colouring from the diet. And then two studies commissioned by our own food standards agency took this into the general population and found, gracious me, even kids without diagnoses of these sorts of diseases, yep, we find the same thing. A cocktail of common artificial food colourings and a common preservative, yep, this does indeed impair the attention, concentration and behaviour <coughs> of kids. So, the modern Western diet, it's seriously damaging our physical health and that much is actually known, even though we're not managing to do much about it. It also affects our brains and our behaviour. And we really shouldn't be surprised. Are we dualists? Because somehow we appear to be. Low-income groups are actually the ones most at risk. I hardly need to add that, but it's worth, a point worth making. So my take-home message, and I'm sorry for all the depressed faces here, nutrition really matters. It matters to our brains as well as our bodies. The control trials, they're thin on the ground, but funding for these things is incredibly thin on the ground. But we have got controlled trials showing benefits, particularly in the area of omega-3, and it's got to be the long chain from fish and seafood. Omega-3 for mood disorders and the withdrawal of artificial food colourings and children's behaviour. And we just know the diets we're eating are not healthy. It's not just about obesity. This is actually impacting on what we actually need to survive as civilised societies. We are also exporting to the developing world now 
the very same modern Western-type diet. So I want us now to kind of think back to what an incredibly optimistic picture we got last week. We can solve these problems, but some of those really inspiring communities that we're looking at, the very last thing they need is a Burger King and a McDonald's to go with their mobile phones and every spang trading. We need to empower, and if I may just make one more point, the women. Because you had commented, David, when you were chatting before this lecture about the inspiring women that Gordon Conway, you know, just gave some very uh, engaging, you know, fillers in on who these women were, the fantastic work they were doing. But I want to hark back to maternal nutrition. Quite frankly, we cannot have healthy next generations if we don't do more to nourish women of childbearing age. Because it's while that child is in the womb that really its destiny is being shaped by what mum eats. So that's another sobering message for us to think about. If anyone wants further information, Fab Research, as we call our charity, please go to the website, fabresearch.org, and this book of mine, All Royalties Go to Fab Research. So if you do want a copy, it's them you'll be benefiting. And one more thing, Robert Lustig, the man who's been brave enough to say that sugar is both addictive and toxic. Fab Research is actually hosting his first visit to the UK. And he's going to be giving a talk. In fact, we're doing a symposium here in Oxford, as well as one in London. The date for London is March the 12th. I'm afraid London gets him first in the press conference, etc. He will then be coming to Oxford March 13th. So go to the Fab Research website if you want to find out how you can hear Robert Lustig and many others. Thank you very much. Thank you.